This is an ABC podcast. Quiz question. What do psychometric tests, workers' comp and Sydney bin chickens have in common? Well, they can all be in a day's work for HR professionals, as we'll hear. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we delve into the transformation underway in the area of human resources. My guest is Jackie Curtis, Head of the HR Profession for the Australian Public Service Commission. Jackie is also COO of the Australian Tax Office, so has walked the talk on many levels. She's been tasked with setting and promoting professional standards for HR within the APS. This interview was recorded live as part of the Australian Human Resources Institute's annual conference, but because it was virtual, we had to bring our own applause. Now, Jackie, you've worked in HR in the public service since 2008 and initially left academia to work at Medicare, which then became the DHS. Got to ask, what drew you to a career in HR? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I've had sort of several careers. Hospitality was my early career. And then I actually worked for a tiny bit for the British Armies of the Rhine, which doesn't even exist anymore. And that that was an experience. I think I had 600 men at my command when you're 23. That's a pretty big deal, actually. Um, But uh, then I came to Australia and moved into academia. And I think the thing that I really recognised when I was working with young people in the vet sector was just seeing how when you invest in people and when they invest in their own education, they can really blossom and grow. And the sense of self-worth and sense of self-esteem starts to grow. And as somebody that was contributing to that process uh, as a teacher and lecturer, it was fabulous to see and really, really rewarding. And I think What happened as I was going through that process, I suddenly sort of sensed that, you know, we hear all the time people, people are the biggest resource that organisations have. And we're told all, we're told that. But what I actually have seen in the early stages of my career was it didn't actually translate into much action. It was sort of just like, you know, this mantra, but where was the action to back it up? And when I got the opportunity to move to the Public Service Commission, I was asked to go over there and run HR and a few other bits and bobs, which I didn't really have much of a clue about, but I thought I'd give it a go. What attracted me to move there was the fact that I thought, well, I could really start to make a difference here and extend that sort of learning and development focus into a broader people's space. And uh, it was a great move. And I've, I've really felt that I've been able to add some value in that space and turn that sort of mantra into real action that makes a difference for people in their working lives. And I think that's so important. So I want to bring this to life, this idea of turning things into action. So let's, I'm going to take you back to when you were the head of HR for the ATO. You were leading and managing the strategic human resources function for 23,000 employees at one stage. So a great organisational change. Let's go back to maybe focusing on one of your biggest challenges at the time, how you overcame it, what actions uh, did you take and what came out of that? Yeah, good question. So many challenges when I came to the ATO. But that wasn't because they didn't have great HR people. They had fantastic HR people who really did have depth of expertise and experience. But what I think had happened over a course of many years is that HR had sort of become 
I guess the silver bullet for all the people issues across the whole organization. And what I saw was that a lot of the managers and leaders within the organization had sort of outsourced responsibility for people management and leadership to the HR teams, whether they were in the corporate area or at that point in time, there were lots of corporate, um, sorry, people, people out in the business lines as well. And what was happening was that the skills of leaders and managers in actually being able to, uh, I guess, manage their people, shape the direction of the way in which their people were and their workforce was going was missing. They just didn't have the capability to do that. So just a, a classic example of this would be performance management. If they needed to have a difficult conversation with a staff member, they would bring in the HR person to have that conversation for them instead yeah. of engaging directly with the person themselves. So what really we needed to do is uplift the capability of managers and leaders and get them to recognise that actually that was their role and HR's role was to assist them in that and help to build their confidence. So what we did, uh, one of the very first steps we did is put what we called people support teams into all the locations across Australia. We have 24 locations. And these are real live HR people that a manager could grab when they needed them and say, look, I've got this challenge or this issue. Can you help me? And then the people support people would actually sit there with the manager and work through what is it that is the challenge? What are you going to say to people? How can you best frame it? And start to build their confidence and their capability so that really when it came to the crunch, which was time to have that conversation, they knew they could go in there and actually get a result. And that's one example, Lisa, of what we did. But that whole idea about building the capability of leaders and managers to perform better and to engage better with their people was such a key thing that we needed to overcome. Now, I want to go to wicked problems. So I've been playing around quite uh, for quite a number of years with design thinking and the law. Um, and so I love this concept of wicked problems. And I know that you use this term as well. So tell me why you focus on wicked problems, which is a problem that is, you know, it's sort of like it's even a systemic problem. It's bigger than just your average problem. It doesn't really have boundaries. That's how I see it. But you tell me about why you focus on it and tell us about your Comcare story in relation to a wicked problem. <laughs> Comcare, the wicked problem of the $50 million premium. I mean, look, there are so many what you would describe as wicked or wicked problems or systemic issues in the people space. And if you think about it, that makes sense. I mean, I always liken, liken it to um, a, a framework that a lady called Barbara Zimmerman has, and she's an academic from Canada. And she talks about, you know, simple problems, and she describes it like making a cake. You know, you follow the recipe, you can do it time and time again, and it's you get a good result usually. Not always, but yeah, usually. I'm actually not a good cook, so that's quite funny too. <laughs> yeah, well, my daughter's in the same boat, and I, I looked at her cake the other day, I thought, hmm, Barbara's Zimmerman has really <laughs> failed here with her theory. But anyway, uh, that was that's an example. Then she talks about complex problems, about like putting people on the moon. You can do it, but it's really difficult. But once you've done it once, you know how to do it and you can do it again. It's repeatable. The complex issue thing really is where people come in and 
she uses the example of children. You can have one child, you can do all these things, and then you have another, you try to repeat it and it's just <laughs> never going to work. And that's why I think the people space is really complicated and complex. And that's why you have so many wicked problems. One of the ones that you are referring to when I joined the ATO was, and this was across the whole of the APS, we were not unique here, is that premiums, Comcare premiums, so that's our insurance premiums against people who have accidents in the workplace, etc., uh, were rising and rising and rising and to the point where ours was $50 million a year. And, uh, you know, to be frank, nobody across the system had wanted to tackle this and take it on and try to resolve it. Uh, because to be honest, I think Lisa, too hard, too hard. It'd been attempted, but it's so sort of difficult. So what we did is we tried to break that problem down. And one of the first things that I um, looked at is, well, what is the process we're using here? And start to do the analysis and really think about, well, how are people interacting with the system? And in fact, you mentioned uh, design thinking and design sort of expertise there, we brought in the design capability that we have in the ATO to look at how the um, the work the workforce were engaging with the corporate areas and also the regulator to see if we could unpick that and understand it. And one of the things that we found was um, that as soon as a staff member rang to make a claim or to at least seek some advice about whether they should make a claim, the very first thing our people did was say, right, what we're going to do, we're going to get a claims pack out to you and this is how you fill it in and this is what you need to say to get your claim to stand up, etc, etc. There was never um, any attempt by RHR people to explore with the staff member what had happened, what might be an alternative to making a claim. So, for example, early intervention, could we send you off to see the physio and get a few sort of um, physio appointments that might help you with your injury or whatever might be the problem that you are having. So we really used evidence and analysis of the issue. And then we also brought in the design team to look at the interactions with the system and started to unpick it so that eventually what we were able to do, and we didn't do it on our own. I've got to acknowledge we worked with the regulator. We worked with other agencies and experts. So it was a collaborative effort um, to really try and make sense of the process and start at the very beginning of when a person has an accident or an injury and then look at all the points down stream to see where we could put in interventions and I can report to you Lisa we just had our Comcare premium the other day and it was just over a million dollars and that's in the space of seven years so terrific hang right? on so the starting point was 50 million 50 million and it was a wicked problem seven years later you're down to one point I think it's 1.3 and what I always say to the leaders and managers of the organisation to get their support, because you can't do it on your own. Corporate don't make these things happen. HR don't make these things happen. It's the leaders and managers and the workforce, the staff themselves that make these things happen. I say that's $49 million back into the business to employ more people or to invest in other things for our people or for the business. Jackie, do you know what I say? I say... Thank you. Thank you.
Jackie, you say storytelling is crucial in getting your message across in large organisations. Tell me more. Well, I am a firm believer in storytelling. I feel that it is the thing that helps people relate to the issue. And one of the things that I have found working in HR and and in corporate areas in particular is often we hold on to the language and the theory that we are, which is really important, which underpins what we do as a profession. So I'm not decrying that. But when you're trying to um, relate to a person in the workforce, could be somebody working in a call centre, could be a highly qualified lawyer in our tax area, could be any type of person, what you really need to be able to do is connect with that person so that they can see what it is in the in the story that re- means anything for them. There's got to have something in it that re- is relatable to them and that they can connect with so that they think, oh, I, ca- I get that now, right? I can understand that. And also I want to be part of it or I don't want to be part of it, whatever their decision is, okay? And so I love stories. I was talking to someone the other day about HR and they said, oh, you know, how has HR changed, etc." So well, we still have all the same sort of basic issues. I said, just the other day, somebody was outside one of our buildings having a cigarette, which is quite unusual these days, but they'd gone on a cigarette break. And um, one of those Sydney bin birds, uh, I don't know what they're actually called, but they're big <laughs> birds and they go around in the bins, oh, flew yes. into our window on the 10th floor, fell down onto the person's head, and we now have a workers' compensation <laughs> claim in trade. And um, they said, well, you know, that's what HR is. I said, well, that is what HR is, and those are the foundation types of things that we all have to deal with every day, but it is so much more than that. What's one specific challenge you're facing right now because of the pandemic? The other thing about workforce is that the demographics are so different. So we've got people in the tax office, for example, who've been here 30 or 40 years working here. They, you know, they're ingrained in the culture. And in some respects, they're easier to to sort of help and manage and support during this time. But young people coming into the organisation, we have between 350 and 500 graduates every year join the tax office. If you imagine starting a new job in a new organisation as a graduate and you're out there working from home, or this could become the new norm, very little time in the office, then you've got to think about, well, what do you do for those people? How do you, you know, make onboard them? How do you sort of settle them into the culture of the ATO and give them an experience where they feel motivated and have a sense of purpose? And that is going to be another challenge for organisations going forward, that cultural impacts of what we're seeing. And this takes us to some crystal ball gazing, I think, Jackie, now that we're talking about the future. So let's fast forward. Let's say five years. What will HR departments look like What will be their role? What will the people be doing and feeling? Well, they'll definitely still have the sort of foundational issues like payroll, (laughs) recruitment, recruitment, the perennial one that always comes up. What are we doing about recruitment, Um, learning and development? All those things will still be there. There'll still be the health and safety, the bin birds falling on people's heads, (laughs) etc. But that won't be the key focus. 
that will be an expectation that those foundational skills are just there, they're done, you've got expert advice, and that will probably be the grounding place for people coming into the profession. But as people grow in the professional, as their career develops, there will be much more emphasis on str strategy. And what I mean by that is, you know, when, when organisations are developing their strategy for their organisation and their corporate plans where they want to be, a lot of the uh, information that goes into that, apart from the expectations of their clients, is things like, well, what can we afford to do? The people people, the HR function will be driving a conversation around, well, what what have we got in our workforce? What capabilities? What's the strength of our workforce? Or what is the challenge in our workforce that will actually help drive and shape that strategy? So they will be informing that discussion from a people perspective and a workforce perspective. But the other thing I think you'll see is that HR professionals will be far better at going to the table the executive table when they have their seat there <laughs> um, with, a with evidence to support the propositions they're putting forward. And they'll have data, they'll have evidence, they'll be able to make the case much more succinctly and clearly. And I think there will be a much bigger emphasis on employee well-being, particularly mental health issues and culture culture and change. Those are the areas that HR professionals really are going to be focused on going forward. You mentioned data. So what will the relationship be between HR professionals, data and tech in the future? It's still emerging what that relationship will be. And of course, there's huge enthusiasm for what tech can deliver in the people space. And I think there is a lot of opportunity there to pursue uh, areas where technology can help add value to the people offering. Uh, now, we, we're seeing this at the moment in the recruitment space, but I, I personally feel that there are other areas where technology and data is going to be really, really useful. So onboarding, I talked about onboarding. You know, I think it would be terrific in the onboarding space, the most critical point of a person coming into an organisation, setting them up for that future career, to be able to get real-time data and evidence about how they're tracking in that first few weeks and months of their employment, that the manager can see and then adjust sort of their approach to how they're working with that employee to get them off to a really terrific start and make them feel they made the right choice in coming into the organisation. Another area I think we're going to see data uh, really help us is in some of these really wicked problems, uh, wicked problem areas, like, um, you know, at the moment, I t we talked about performance management, but performance management has links also with uh, code of co conduct or conduct and behaviour issues. It can result in some really messy issues around per perceived bullying and harassment if the employee feels that what's being said is unfair. That's a really complex web and system. And I think that it also then results sometimes in high unplanned leave or absenteeism, etc. So when we get the data and evidence 
that, that can support where we might best intervene in that space, that will be really, really critical to actually making sense of all of that. And then with um, artificial intelligence, I think we're going to see some really interesting stuff. I was reading an article um, just yesterday about where artificial intelligence is being used to help um, organisations predict where employees might leave the organisation and who's most likely to leave the organisation. And I think one of the things that popped up in that was they were actually able to predict the employees that might pass away. And the HR people really? said, well, we don't want, we don't want that. <laughs> That's not what, what we want to know. It's far too confronting. Um, but I think there are going to be some fabulous opportunities to harness those insights from either AI or from data and analytics that will help to inform the initiatives and the sort of way forward for HR people when they're making suggestions to the business. I noticed when I was uh, still in big business um, that there was more and more use of psychometric testing and those sorts of assessments. Um, What do you think about psychometric testing? My view on psychometrics is they can serve a purpose, but there's far too much emphasis put on psychometrics to cull numbers from big bulk round processes like graduate programs. And I feel that in the changing world of work, we're saying we need innovation, entrepreneurs, we need difference, but we are using the same old tests that we've always used to cull people out. And I don't think we're getting the diversity that we need in our recruits coming into our organisations. So Jackie, if I'm an HR professional, how might I convince my organisations to invest in increasing the data and technology capability for HR? Well, Lisa, it goes back to your comments about storytelling. You've really got to, if you want to convince the business, when you say the business, these are the leaders (laughs) of the other areas of your organisation. I always find it funny they're described as the business, but you've got to convince Mm. the people in the business that would prefer to invest those dollars in their own priorities, that by investing in the data and analytics to improve people functions, they will get something out of it. So you need a story, you need a narrative, and you need to be able to demonstrate how you are going to do that. So, you know, what I would do in this instance is, for example, unplanned leave is a big or was a big, not anymore because of COVID, but was a really big issue in um, the APS. And what we were able to do with data and analytics was show them not only who the people were that were taking the leave, but more importantly, the patterns around that. So we could demonstrate that if your manager was a high unplanned leave taker, you could actually see the flow out effect of the people all around. It was like concentric circles. And we could put that in front of the business and say, you see, from this data, not only can we identify who it is, but we can understand why it's happening and the and sort of the patterns beneath it. And if we can address this and get this down to this level of unplanned leave, this equates to Let's talk in dollars because that's what they all love in the business. A million dollars back into your business line or a hundred thousand working hours back into your business line. That's the language you have to use to make the case. And you have to have a story to show that it's actually a reality, not just some pie in the sky theory. And I think that's part of the story is that this difference, you know, um, that you make to people's lives uh, and them feeling valued 
Yeah. It's such exactly. an important thing, isn't it? Exactly, Lisa. You know, one of, I've got twin daughters. Um, it's interesting to see the contrast in their career choices and how they're progressing. But one of them came home to me the other day and she said, you know what, Mum? She said, you know, we invest all this time when we're growing up in our education. And why do we do that? She said, yes, we do it for our life. But she said, we do it because we're going to work. We do it to get a career and a job and to go into the workforce. And she said, when you go into the workforce, it's so important then, isn't it, that we feel good about our jobs and that we have access to training. And we, because she said that's what where your self worth comes from self worth, self esteem. And so much of it takes place in the workplace and we prepare ourselves for it. And then we get into the workplace. If we don't focus on people and give them a brilliant experience, how can we possibly expect people to deliver? to really innovate and feel energized and to be the best they can be and as and you know give that discretionary effort to the organization if we're not investing back in them and that's what I, why I'm so passionate about HR because HR can make a difference in making the case for that and helping leaders of organizations make that a reality which is what it needs to be thanks so much Jackie <laughs> thank you Lisa Thanks to Jackie Curtis and the team at ARI and the ATO for their help with the show today. Thanks also to This Working Life's producer, Maria Tickle, who definitely doesn't want her death predicted by AI. Before we go, we recently asked you where, when and how you listen to our podcast and your responses were so interesting. Hi, Lisa and Marie. Paul here. I just listened to This Working Life sitting at the breakfast table after having breakfast. I'm about to do my stretches and exercises and then I'm going to go to work by walking down the corridor. I'm listening to the podcast This Working Life while in lockdown. I had taken long service leave, but this meant I was unable to travel anywhere. And I'm listening to it on my phone as a diversion from scrolling through the news, Sydney Morning Herald on my iPad or watching Netflix. Listening to the podcast on the ABC Listen app, Apple Cross Perth, WA, about 9.30, whilst on a stroll down to the South Perth Yacht Club. I'm making contact from the place I often listen to your podcast from, which is the local YMCA gym. It's a place of peace and meditation for me. I, my body lifts heavy weights and my mind roams freely through the multiverse, which you guys help with. So thank you for that. And I have to read this one from Charles. The reason will become obvious. I'm in a Perth-based mining machinery workshop. I'm an auto electrician building new machines for the industry. I'm sitting on top of a tall ladder, rewiring the cabin of a grader. It's a cold Wednesday morning and I have a hot cup of mint tea next to me on my platform. I'm wearing a set of Bluetooth industrial noise protective earmuffs, listening to your podcast as I work. Now, Charles, that's what we call commitment. Hats off to you. We'd love to hear from more of you. Email us a voice memo to thisworkinglife at abc.net.au. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.